0: John Hancock helped lead the Missouri Republican Party to one of its greatest victories in modern history. But it wasn't all triumph and glory. Hancock gives a candid assessment of his chairmanship of the Missouri Republican Party on another edition of Politically Speaking.
1: Nine, eight, seven, six, six, five, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair to say. As I say, say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I
0: think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio in St. Louis is...
2: Colleague, Joe Manis. And
0: returning to the show for the second time, a very victorious guest we have in studio today... Is John Hancock the soon-to-be former chairman yes, yes. of the Missouri Republican Party. A title Party. I
1: have aspired to hold for two years? <laughs> former chairman.
0: <laughs> that, that that's saying something. You, by saying that, you would you would give the impression to our audience that you know the the, the last couple of weeks were a terrible failure for the Missouri Republican, instead of the biggest triumph in its history. But it worked out way.
1: well, didn't it? Yeah.
2: Well, I think it's Curtis cl- actually that the two years that you've handled the party, for better or for worse, has been two of the most eventful (laughs) years that the Missouri Republican Party has probably seen in decades, if not modern history. I mean, starting with the very tragic. I mean, you took office just a few days before the tragic uh, suicide suicide of state auditor then gubernatorial candidate tom schweik you got caught, snared in all that which
0: was a subject of our last show yeah if you wanna... and,
2: and we can mention briefly that later but then now you're um leaving after the state gop had this huge blowout on november 8th won all the statewide offices that were on the ballot now some credit and i argue a decent amount of credit Goes to Donald Trump. No there question. Was a, there was a Trump train. No question. So I'm just interested in, in your thoughts. I mean, where you're seeing your your tenure bookended by two rather momentous events, and so now you're leaving on a pretty high note.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's a little hard to believe. You have to have to pinch myself sometimes. I I expected that this could have been a really good year. But man, I mean, you talk about the the peaks and valleys of this thing, and the emergence of Donald Trump, which split state parties all across the country.
2: Well, it split
1: and Missouri's too, to some degree. A little bit, uh, but but you know, the we all sort of hung in there. Yeah. And uh, and and rode the rode the train, as it as it uh, sped up and slowed down at different points along the way, and it was just a crazy cycle. And I knew when I ran for chairman that this twenty sixteen was going to be a monumental year and uh, for for better or worse if, if Chris Coster would have been elected governor we would have had Chris Coster at the top of that ticket for who knows decades to come for governor and U.S. Senate and eventually maybe president or vice president uh, and that would have framed could have potentially framed state politics for the rest of our lives so it, it was a very consequential election cycle.
0: Now, why do you think Trump won the state by nearly 20 percentage points, given that he didn't really have robust support among, you know, political officials during the primary, even after the primary? Well, actually, he had
2: really no major. I mean, the only major people who endorsed him in the primary was Phyllis Schlafly. Now, by Cleveland, and I was in Cleveland with Mm -hmm. Hancock and a bunch of others. Everybody was in line. But But there were still a lot of cruise people who were still doing so. Originally. And also,
0: just to add, I don't think Trump really put in a lot of money or organization into the state like, for for example, no. uh, you know, George W. Bush did
1: in his two two cycles. Certainly in 2000 they did, and, right. and, and uh, to a lesser extent in 2004. Uh, no, Trump had two full-time paid staff right. in the state.
2: And they were respected guys. I Good don't guys.
1: Wanna... But they were two people. Right. Right. I
0: mean, I, I can't imagine how many paid staffers there were in 2004 or even 2008, probably yeah. probably triple or quadruple that amount.
1: I, I oh, what I would well, think. With, and with full field operations, yeah. you know, we had paid field staff. Now, uh, with the blunt campaign, well, we'll get to the blunt campaign in a okay. minute. But as it relates to Trump, uh, the question, why did he win it so by such a large margin? Uh, One was that Hillary Clinton really was a bad candidate, and uh, she was a bad candidate in 2008. She was a a bad candidate in 2016, and there just was not any passion for her. There was a tremendous amount of passion for Donald Trump, not from traditional Mm -hmm. establishment Republicans, but in the grassroots, a tremendous amount of passion. And we saw a lot of people getting involved and volunteering who maybe hadn't voted in— Eight, twelve, sixteen, twenty 12, 16, 20 years. Uh, I went to a went to a concert with a musician friend after the election and uh, he invited another musician friend who I had not met. And the guy was 64 years old and he voted for the first time in 2016. So I mean, that tells you something. Well, what is it about
0: Trump that you think, especially motivated people in rural Missouri to get out and vote? Because we've talked about that a lot on this show, and it seems counterintuitive that a thrice-married billionaire from New York City who really has no personal commonalities with people in rural Missouri would do so well there. Part of it has to be what you said Hillary Clinton was not a good candidate. But what was it about Donald Trump that touched the nerve?
1: Well, I think that book, uh, what's it called, Hillbilly Elegy that came out? Yeah, I think that guy kind of hits the nail on the head. You look across these rural communities, towns uh, across spread out, not just in Missouri, but I all swear. over the country. And so many of these towns were built on the shoe factory or the plant or whatever. It or was. the
2: glass factory. I grew up in a little town in right. Indiana at the grass factory, too. And I've talked about this many times. Yeah, and those
1: jobs are gone. Those, those c- communities don't look like they used to look. And So along comes a guy talking about keeping jobs in our country talking about making America great again and whatever that may mean for the hearer. And, and I think what he tapped into was a sense that the country was woefully adrift, that politicians had been singularly ineffective at addressing a lot of the problems, politicians in both parties. And, and I think that is the, the passion and the emotion that Donald Trump's message tapped into, and it, it resonated clearly, 18-point win.
2: Now, without getting into the weeds on this, because we've got a lot of things we want to talk to you about and we don't want to re- beat all the Washington stuff. But still, um, will those voters stick with the GOP, let's say two years from now, if they don't see some change in those little towns? I mean, because, you know, many people and I'll openly say this. Will the glass factories come back to the little town that I no. grew up in. No, no. They're in China somewhere. <laughs> um and the shoe factories, they're in China right. somewhere. So when you're looking, I mean, is there a danger for the GOP, not just in Missouri but elsewhere, if there isn't some sort of tangible evidence sure. of change in those towns by 2018? Or do you think those voters are going to have patience and, and see a long view?
1: Well, we'll see. There's always danger for a party when it bears full governing responsibility. And that was certainly true of, of the Democrats uh, going into the 2010 midterms. They had the federal government and they got shellacked in the midterms. So there's always that danger present. And we certainly, uh, both in Missouri and nationally, uh, there's nobody, if things don't go well, there's nobody to point the finger at. Uh, it's the Republicans that are in charge. So uh, now, conversely, If things do go well and you see economic growth and you really do see approaching 4 percent growth in jobs and so forth, then, you know, this could be a very long lasting um, realigning almost type of election.
0: So we'll have four to eight years to talk about Donald Trump in in various podcasts, but I do want to get more on a state level. Yeah.
2: Yeah, because you have a similar view now with you have a similar situation, all the different. With the governor-elect, Eric Greitens, you know, who does not have political experience, but he is nationally known yes. for for his uh, charity work and for being a best-selling um, author. Um, so he is an outsider. It wasn't like a bunch of the state party people were with him. Right. So when you're looking at this, he's now going to be running the state government. Um, he's already made what some would see as a smart uh, choice to replace you, because you were, you were planning to leave anyway. Yes, I was. But with Todd Graves, uh...
1: a great choice. I mean, I couldn't be more pleased with that choice. I think Todd is perfect uh, for this role at this time.
2: Uh, in in what way does he mesh with Greitens' sort of image or what?
1: No, I think I think Todd is he's politically savvy. Uh, he's media savvy. He can raise money. He's been a candidate. He's been a statewide candidate. Yes. He's been an office holder. Uh, he's been the U.S. attorney. He's got, he's got the kind of breadth of, of different experiences that I think work out particularly well in a state party context. He's, he's been there. He's done that. And uh, I think people that may not know him yet that are on the state committee are going to grow to really appreciate his leadership. It's a great choice.
0: Now, not to delve into the not-so-good past, but you were caught in this whirlwind at the beginning of your tenure in this conversation about whether there was rampant anti-Semitism in Missouri politics or within Missouri Republican politics. Now, flash forward two years and Eric Greitens made history by becoming the first Jewish governor in Missouri history by winning most of rural Missouri, which is which is not overly Jewish. What do you think that what sort of message do you think that sends, especially about what you went through? Well, you know, I never
1: thought uh, you go back and listen to our last interview I never thought that being Jewish was a negative attribute uh, in, to run for office in Missouri and particularly as Republicans because if you look at the evangelical base of our party um, there's a lot of appeal for Jewish candidates uh, among that base and so I never you know if I were going to go out and and whisper campaign about somebody it wouldn't be that they were Jewish it would you know you know yeah, uh, that's not. It just you know isn't the kind of thing that that matters. And I think, I think Eric uh, ran a masterful campaign, and, uh, and he certainly you know having the support and the and the financial support he did right. it didn't hurt either. But he ran a masterful campaign, and you know, a year ago, you couldn't find five people who would tell you that Chris Coster could be defeated. Yeah. You know, I mean everybody assumed that Coster was going to win. So. Uh, this was a this was a big 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 victory for and and i just
0: wanted to just add really quickly before joe jumps in while i don't think his religion was an what was a huge emphasis in his campaign i have read interviews where where he talked about how his faith directed him in public service and i just just from personal standpoint as somebody who is is jewish Mm -hmm. and as somebody who has four generations of people that's lived in missouri it was hard not to, to think of that was a significant milestone for, for the no Jewish question. community in, in Missouri, regardless of your politics. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah,
2: well, one of the things I was in, in, intrigued by, okay, um, the conventional wisdom, and I, I'm interested in, in your take on this, is that if the Trump train, okay, if it hadn't been 18 points, right. and if it had been 10, yeah. let's say, uh-huh. 10 or 12, that Coster m- might still have won narrowly. At least that's been some of the—do you— question that I mean do you think that that Greitens own campaign would have put him on top anyway I know this is Monday morning quarterbacking but that's part of what our podcast is
1: well you'll never know for sure obviously Um, I know that because our governor's race takes place in the presidential cycle and most states don't uh, it tends to get covered up some Uh, now in this particular year There wasn't any presidential advertising to speak of Mm -mm. in in the market uh, in either of the big cities.
2: But there was still a lot of attention. A lot of attention.
1: Um, You know, there probably is a point at which, you know, a a Trump lead would not have been sufficient enough for for Blunt and Greitens. Whether that was 10 points or 8 points or 12 points, you know, who knows. Right. But for sure... In order to win those races, particularly after having a divisive late primary in yes. August, yes, yes, you, you've got to get some lift from the top of the ticket.
0: And I was just going to ask this because both Blunt and Greitens did something that s- several other Republicans didn't do across the country, especially after that October Access Hollywood video, yep, where where Trump seemed to be completely in a death spiral. You saw Republican candidates all over the country disavowing Trump, yeah, including Ann Wagner. And Blunt and Gritens didn't do that. And I think that regardless of whether you think that was morally right, from a tactical standpoint, I think that was a crucial moment for both of them because Trump ended up winning the state by a huge margin. And had they disavowed him, that could have lost them support of some Trump voters.
2: Well, I mean, to be fair, though, neither Greitens nor Blunt, and this was arguably smart as well, it wasn't like they were wrapping themselves in Trump they, they from were, the get-go. But they, they were basically They, they didn't
0: pull a, a Mark anybody. Kirk or a Kelly Ayotte. I don't know if I- Ayotte. Ayotte. Yeah. They, they didn't disavow them or saying I wasn't going to endorse them right. anymore. And I, I whether or not you agree with them from a moral standpoint- I think it's hard to argue that wasn't a smart tactical decision by both of them. What do you think about well,
1: that? Well, you know, at the time uh, when that all happened, and that was, what, three weeks, two and a half weeks in, yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah, right. And, yes. and, you know, Trump was, in our own internal polling, he was at anywhere from 11 to 14 up. Mm-hmm. Okay, see, now that's and,
2: interesting, you know. So he's 11 to 14 up in Missouri, even with that going on. Well, Go as ahead. it
1: happened. And so and it, 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 we, he lost a little ground for a few days. Um, but... And and the challenge for for Roy Blunt and, and and Eric Greitens is that there were there were two kinds of Trump voters that were nontraditional. You had nontraditional Republicans that, that may not participate all that often, and you had a good number of Democrats that were voting for him. And it wasn't the case where Greitens or Blunt, certainly not Blunt, were going to get those Democrats that were Trump voters, but they couldn't afford to alienate the Republican Trump voters and the new voters that were out there, so it was a very difficult, I mean, I don't think it was a difficult decision, and I think both of them handled it with a a fair amount of tact and precision, and I think it it ended up working out well.
2: Now, one of the intriguing things about the Senate race, because I think this is one of the more high-profile Senate races, definitely nationally, but also in Missouri, this was a case where I would say that the Senate race almost overshadowed the governor's race, depending on the week. Right. But um, were there particular things that Blunt did that you think helped him um, overcome the candor threat? I mean, because he only lost—he only won by three, yeah. Blunt did. Well, I'm well aware so, I mean, if, if if the Trump train had been closer, I really do believe Blunt might have been a casualty.
1: Yeah, um, or if, if he would have— performed worse with trump voters than they right. ended up doing uh, so you know i think the key moments in that race uh between jason kander and the the dscc and the and the independent super PACs that were all running the family lobbying message they had i don't know close to ten thousand points behind it was that. unbelievable yeah, GPS, i yes. have
0: never seen so many ads for for one, and, one candidate before and,
1: and so and it clearly was resonating and was working and um Roy's campaign waited a bit before really taking that attack head on and they finally did they finally <laughs> answered it pointed out that candor's wife was a lobbyist and uh
2: candor says she's not, but I, not I, well whatever I mean, yeah. yeah
1: yeah but but regardless i think at the point he engaged in that argument i think that was when the tide began to turn in the race and then the other key thing that the blunt campaign did consistently so if you're going to beat an incumbent, and Jason Cander was going to beat an incumbent who had a lot of money and was well known, you've got to do two things. You've got to disqualify the incumbent, and Cander's campaign did a, a a good job of that, in my opinion, as a political yeah, professional. W- yeah. We're
2: just talking about strategy and, here. But
1: the other thing you've got to do then, once you've discredited the incumbent, you've got to demonstrate that you're an acceptable alternative. And I don't believe Cander ever met that standard. And and when the Blunt campaign, so. Kander tried to move the, the message, and they put the points behind it that Roy Blunt was a corrupt insider.
2: Okay.
1: The Blunt campaign moved the message and put the points behind it that Jason Kander was an out-of-touch liberal who would not support the policies that Missourians wanted. And that message ultimately, I think, carried the day in a, in a very close election. Plus— we had about a five and a half million dollar victory program that was focused on that Senate race and the governor's race because we knew those races were going to be close. Mm-hmm.
0: Now now I want to ask this question because I'm not taking anything away from Jason Cander's campaign, which I think was well, well above average, given that he only won the It, it lost was by above
1: threat. average, but not as good as a summer credit, I mean, well, that,
0: Joe, well, okay. let me ask this all right, question. All right, all right. <laughs> okay. We got that. <laughs> be, be, besides <laughs> the gun ad. His messaging was almost identical to what Robin Carnahan did in 2010. True. In fact, some of the arguments were identical. True. Yet, Robin Carnahan isn't being touted as a presidential candidate. Robin Carnahan isn't being asked to be the DNC chairman. Granted, she lost by a larger points. margin. 14 points. But, but why, is, why do you think there there's so much celebration about Jason Kander's campaign when he basically ran a very similar campaign to he Robin did. Carnahan's?
1: Uh, he, he came out of nowhere. Uh, Carnahan was a known... Quantity, and um, so Cander, like Eric Greitens, really had zero name ID going into this thing, and so he came from nowhere, and that can be a huge advantage. Mm -hmm. Where I where I take issue with the folks who are saying, "Oh, it was the greatest campaign ever." Blah blah. blah. It wasn't Uh, because he he did he did precisely half of what he needed to do in order to win, and and he had a lot of help. I mean, they put ten thousand points behind that spot. He never. I mean, he assembled the gun. Uh, he did a couple of face-to-camera things about his values or what, but he did not establish himself as an acceptable alternative. Now,
2: I, I, I don't want to get a big debate on the air, but I mean, Jason, I take issue. I don't think he did the same kind of campaign that Robin Carnahan did. In fact, I think Canders was stronger for a number of reasons. But we, but <coughs> Robin Carnahan tried to tighten herself closer to Bush. She was in favor of some of the Bush policies. I think she muddied the waters, but. Uh, and, I, and I think that and 10 was a
1: bad year for yeah, Democrats. Yeah. I mean, the, the only
0: thing I agree with you, the only thing I would say is just some of the, the, the specific the argument and messaging was similar. That's what I was trying to get. But
2: at. on the other hand, she was sort of in Blunt's position. Um, there was a huge deluge of anti-Carnahan ads that ran in September and October of 2010. In fact, I wrote about him. I mean, the uh, National Chamber or some of the other third-party groups just dumped all this anti-Carnahan ads, and and the Democrats didn't counter it all. Whereas this time, it was almost in reverse, where there was arguably at least as much, if not more, anti-Blunt stuff as— um outside anti yeah. stuff, and, and
1: you know the other the other main difference between those two campaigns of course is that robin carnahan had no capacity <laughs> to communicate that she was a fresh face or an outsider <laughs> and uh, you know the name had been in missouri politics That's for decades fair. and whereas candor while he was secretary of state and had been a state representative he was not a political newcomer right but to he the voters uh, he was a brand new idea
0: now i, I want to get back to something else because when I was talking about the October surprise, I could not stop thinking about what happened in 2012 with Todd Aiken. There were yep. some, some similarities. Oh, that was August. Yeah, that was the it,
1: August that, that was, surprise. That was August the, August the 19th, surprise. to be and precise.
0: I, I, I think there were a lot of reporters, yes. including myself, who thought that the same trajectory was going to unfold, that that was going to be the catalyst for Trump to lose a lot of ground similar to Todd Aiken did. Now, that didn't happen. Didn't. In fact, it, it went the opposite direction. As a political person, Why do you think Todd Akin sunk like an anvil after his legitimate rape gaffe, yet Trump managed not to be fatally harmed by his?
1: Well, Donald Trump is a fundamentally different kind of political figure that we've ever seen before. He was a known commodity from reality television for years. And, you know, people that I think already baked into the cake that he, you know— would would say and do some very provocative things and it, uh and they didn't care and they didn't seem to care that much whereas you know i think in aiken's case um he'd been in congress for 12 years but he was he was really in an introductory mode running for a statewide office like that and i think those comments just you know just sunk him immediately plus uh the mccaskill campaign in twelve, did a very good job of capitalizing on that and then building on it throughout into the into the, the fall. Yeah.
2: Now you're going to be not a. I mean, you're going to be back as a political consultant. Yes. Do you expect to be doing some um, uh, clients here? And hope so. Might you be involved? I mean, in 2018 is going to be a big Senate year in Missouri because Senate McCaskill is, is going to be running race. for reelection. Um, we're not sure about. Uh, auditor galloway's plans yet but the assumption is she is
0: no i think she's running for re-election we just don't know which republican is going to run well the fact
2: that's going to ask you uh i mean granted obviously you're not going to be telling any private stuff but just just looking at it from the field uh do you see where there could be another gop primary yeah uh to to get the nominee and whether or not my my contention is i think you and some others over the years have been concerned about because the primaries tend to take so much money out of the, of the party because the candidates are spending all this money, this right. and that. But I've come to believe that actually it tends to help as a rule because they get so much publicity that the winner sometimes gets a bump if they're not too damaged. I, I'm just looking at the— Well, that's the key. The, the GOP the, the race this time. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Look into 2018 when there arguably will be a GOP primary to take on. McCann's and my role. guess
1: will be that they'll both be multi candidate primaries. Okay. And, and I've, you know, my belief is that we emerge, anybody, but Republicans emerge better, less damaged from a multi candidate primary than a two way. A two way primary, or even if there's more than two, but if there are two main candidates, uh, that tends to produce. A, a much more badly wounded nominee than a multi-candidate field does. And I think the fact that we had four running for governor did help us. And to your point, Joe, I think Eric came out of that process not so damaged. Right. And, and much better known uh, than he would have been probably otherwise.
2: Even though they had, I mean, for a while, during our uh, radio debate that we had, the all four, which was a highlight for, one of the highlights for me, because I thought our primary at least was issue, or, I mean, our, uh, radio debate was pretty issue. But the, all three of the his rivals really zeroed in on him, went after him over some donors and right, some other right. stuff. But it did it was intriguing to me that, yes, once he won, most of them were quiet. Catherine Hannaway immediately turned around and endorsed him and actually be, became a prominent supporter. Were there any lessons, I guess what I'm saying, going into 2012 from that experience yeah. that you hope the party uh, or the activists excuse me take to heart
1: well what i what i did as the chairman was we, we sat down with these people uh not just the governor people but the, every contested primary and the statewide in february and they all committed pledged that they were going to support the nominee and uh it didn't go off without a hiccup <laughs> but uh but at the end of that process they all did endorse the nominee and uh, we w- weren't able to put together the the Kumbaya breakfast meeting that I hated. I'm, I'm sure you
0: were you were you, you know, were just, torn up over that. You saved a continue. couple hundred
1: bucks, and uh, but but they did all endorse the nominee, and <laughs> and more importantly, uh, nary a bad thing was said about the nominee after the primary by any. Well, of did them.
0: it did it help that in especially the governor's race there just really weren't a lot of issue distinctions. I'm not saying there were none. Like Eric Greitens came out against SJR 39, right, which right. was controversial, but it's not like. Gritens, especially what he said during the primary, was that much different yeah. well, issue-wise. And I think you've got to
1: see uh, Republicans, Missouri Republicans, are pretty uh, – I mean, there's not a whole lot of you know, ideological diversity out there, mm-hmm. no. and uh, that's, that's pretty much typical. I did want to make one other point sure. about the okay. governor's race. <clears throat> I think perhaps the biggest tactical mistake that was made by any campaign uh, this last year was the Coster campaign. In sitting on $10 million during the month of July, when all of the Republicans were out there attacking Greitens, attacking Bruner, attacking Hanaway, he hoarded his money and didn't go up. And he had some very good ads when he went up in early August, but he did not avail himself of that window to contrast himself with the squabbling Republicans during July, which Jay Nixon did masterfully eight years early. Remember, mm-hmm. Nixon's yes. campaign in July of 08— he was driving around in his pickup truck yes, down in Jefferson right. County, talking to his dog, and uh, and he drove his favorables way. way well, quickly. I'm
0: glad you mentioned that because I was actually watching that ad yesterday, yeah. and it's that ad to me says a lot of things. Even though Jay Nixon at that point had lived in Jefferson City for 16 years, right. he came off as an authentic rural Missourian. And DeSoto, I say, is kind of ruralish, even though- oh, Well, to yeah. St.
2: Louis, it's rural. This is, yeah. <laughs>
0: and I think that he really had a legitimate connection with rural voters. You saw that in 2008, yep. where he won most of outstate Missouri. You saw that even in 12, where he did pretty well. Even though Coster did a lot of stylistic and policy-oriented things to try to appeal to rural Missouri. he, and got, he
2: got the Farm Bureau he had, it, endorsement. He got the Farm
0: Bureau endorsement, NRA endorsement. He didn't do nearly as well. And I just wonder if it's a less tangible thing that happened that rural Missouri just didn't find him authentic as Nixon, possibly.
2: Or Or did he not take advantage? I mean, I think one of the things that Hancock is bringing up, should he have been running ads in July saying, yeah, exactly. I'm the NRA guy, yes. I'm the Farm Bureau guy,
1: Now, he hadn't gotten those endorsements at that point, but he certainly had the opportunity, and he's good on camera. Chris Coster is good on camera. I think we can all agree. And he had that opportunity. And and the contrast of him being good on camera is much more profound when you're running that against uh, uh, Republican attack spots. That are going on during that same window between
2: each other yes, not against between him. each other mm-hmm.
1: uh and and that you know he had an opportunity there to drive his favorables high enough that he maybe could have withstood i don't know whether he could have withstood an 18 point Donald no trump i mean now. the trump train kind of but but he certainly tactically made a in my opinion a, a big mistake and i think
0: there was another tactical error that he made and i don't mean to dump on Coster. i i respect him as a person i still think he's a very skilled political figure regardless without, without of this result. Question. But I think when he his first attack was against The Mission Continues yes. and not against, say, Greitens donors or his lack of governmental experience, I thought that that was a mistake because regardless of what you think about Eric Greitens as a political figure, it's almost universal that The Mission Continues is seen as a pretty noble enterprise. And I think to... To to say that he was basically insinuating that he was taking money from it yep. was a mistake because the message was kind of confusing and I think it was attacking his strength that was not really that he really that I don't think Coster could really knock down a peg. I don't know if you noticed that too, but I certainly I thought did. So too. I did.
1: I did, and I I wish um, I think I think Eric responded to it effectively, but I think he could have responded to it perhaps even more effectively by saying, look everybody that runs a charity the size of mine the the, the 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 chief executive this is the salary they make this was my salary i wasn't taking money i'm and i'm i was actively running this organization we put 10 million dollars a year to help veterans direct benefits yes. to veterans and I think that would have obliterated. And, and that's the spot. what I was
0: trying to get at. I used to be on a board of a nonprofit right after I graduated from the zoo, and we paid our executive director a salary. And this was the similar situation.
1: 150000 dollars is common. You go go to these hospital foundations, yeah, Children's Hospital or Cardinal Glenn. I mean, those, those executives are making so, hundreds of thousands. So, so of dollars. yes, continue, Joe. So, uh
2: well, yeah. I mean, I I'm not going to get. I mean I've got my own thoughts on some of this stuff, but looking broader, mm-hmm. okay, do you think as a result of the election, looking at the three GOP, you know, losers for governor and Coster, do you see a future for any of them? I mean looking at it objectively as a tactician, not as right. a as a Republican Party chairman, or do you think all four of those people are probably gonna be doing other things? Well
1: Coster certainly has a an entry point because the Democrats have such a dearth of candidates uh, and their bench is very thin. Yeah, but he's going to have to uh, wait six years. He will have to wait a while. The, the, on the mm-hmm. Republican side, this is an interesting dynamic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've had these multi-candidate primaries – and we're going to have two more of them, I predict, in 18 for the U.S. Senate and for Auditor, Three, four. Do five you expect candidates.
2: any of these candidates for governor to try to run for Could, for, for, because, for because
1: it's it's really the last opportunity. If you're a Republican and has statewide ambitions, 2018 could be the last train leaving the station because what's going to happen in 20 is that the entire statewide ticket are going to be incumbents running for re-election. Mm-hmm. So there is no entry point there if you're a, an aspirational— Office holder, you know, on your way to the White House and you need to be the state treasurer for, you know, whatever it may be. And there won't be a Senate and, race on the ballot. And there's in no Senate race. And so uh, and, and when the next time there is a Senate race, uh, it'll be blunt or open, uh, potentially, uh, depending that's, on what yeah, yeah 22 yeah. and 22. But so 18 is the last train leaving the station if you if you want to run. And that's why I think you're going to see multi-candidate. Primary. Well,
0: this is going to be my question, because there are obviously a lot of possible Republican candidates to run for U.S. Senate. Sure. They, they could be anywhere from a congressperson like Ann Wagner, Vicki Hartzler, Sam Graves. It could be somebody in the state legislature like Todd Richardson or even somebody who's non-leadership like Paul Kurtman. It could be Peter Kinder, Catherine Hanaway, John Bruner, possibly. Do you think that it may be better for the candidate to run against McCaskill not to be a member of Congress so they could kind of contrast their lack of federal experience? Or do you think that may not matter? It's too early
1: to it's too early to try and define the cycle for Mm -hmm. 18. Uh, It's going to be dependent on where Trump's job approval is. It's going to be dependent on what Congress has passed and gotten signed into law, it's gonna be dependent on where the the state of the economy, the job situation jobs in the economy are the top issue, that's one set of facts. If foreign policy and terrorism is the top issue, which it could be in twenty eighteen, that's a different kind of race. So and, and if it ends up being that, then somebody that's got some national experience and has served on some committees that deal with foreign affairs and, and defense and anti terrorism. Uh, that's going to be a good resume tool. So you just don't know yet what that cycle is going to look like.
2: Now, during these two years, and we've mentioned, you know, it had some highs and some lows, but <laughs> just looking at it in broadly, I mean, as you're leaving, are there any lessons, I mean, without lessons that you take from all this that's going to help you as you go back into consulting?
1: Well, I've learned some lessons about the state party. Um,
2: because you've been executive director yeah. before, so were there lessons this time that you oh, didn't there's know no question. from before? Yeah, the
1: state party used to be a more of a quarterback for what the what the what the party and the ticket were doing, and kind of helping to sort out primaries ahead of time. And they're really it's certainly with the, with the finance law that existed in sixteen the state party was not a quarterback uh, you know, I wasn't calling the plays and and uh, the you know that just is not true the state party though is a pretty good field goal kicker and that if you can put the resources together because the campaigns all say they're gonna have a ground game but they they never do and and uh, and, and if you can put the resources together and get the campaigns working with the party and we succeeded in that to execute voter identification and turnout programs uh, making sure that you're getting mail out to get the vote out and, and do those kinds of things. And that's a field goal. That's two, three points. And, and I do think we effectively put a few points on the board. And in a race like Roy Blunt's, it made a difference.
2: Now, um, now that campaign, without belaboring whether or not the law stands or anything, but yeah, right no. now we have campaign don- donation limits again. Hmm. Um, does that resurrect... The state parties, as far as maybe going from the field goal carrier to the quarterback again, or or will they have a different role because of the more robust third-party ca- uh, yeah, groups that's, I'm interested
1: in? I, all like. of these reforms end up, at the end of the day, strengthening outside non-party groups.
0: Just for our listeners, the amendment puts a $25,000 donation cap on parties, but no cap on third parties, okay. but continue. Yeah, go and, and
1: no corporate money to political parties, which I think is a big, will have a weakening effect on the state party uh, by not being able to, to raise that corporate money that we used to, that was the bread and butter of right. the state party. So uh, I think it will empower third parties who, who can great, go out and get cor- corporate money, whatever they, they can. And I don't necessarily believe, well, I don't believe that's a good thing for the for the system Um, you know all these reforms that we've implemented you know all of which were designed to to clean up the political system in my opinion have have weakened a, a very intricate system that developed over many many years that really brought some sanity and sensibility sensitivity to the political system and you know, you almost though have to live and breathe the political system like we do <laughs> to to understand why some of these reforms are not such a good idea.
0: We'll be following those those changes for for many years, but we just want to thank you for coming in. You're you're welcome back anytime, even though you'll just be the former chairman as yes. opposed to.
2: And uh, one thing I don't want people to forget, aside from being the chairman, from being a political consultant, <laughs> I mean, you have done some. Uh, Radio anchor duties, do you plan on keeping some of that? And uh, Hancock is a crack piano player.
1: Yeah, when all else fails, you'll find me in Branson at a theater.
0: <laughs> Check them out in in, in Branson, folks. For <laughs> all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at?
2: Jaymanis, that's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. How
0: would we follow you on Twitter or any other place on the World Wide Web?
1: John R. Hancock.
0: We'll be back next time. Until then, so long.